This is a Blue Marine Foundation podcast special, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. Hello, my name is Lewis Pugh. I'm an endurance swimmer and the United Nations patron of the oceans. And I'd like to welcome you to a very special edition of the Blue Marine Foundation podcast. And it's wonderful today to be able to speak to my dear friend, Charles Clover. It's great to see you, Liz, um, across the continents as, as we happen to be. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's a great day. I finally got to, 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 to publish this book, uh, Rewilding the Sea, which is about the last 10 years uh, of what we've been doing in marine conservation after my career in journalism uh, with a load of other people. But I must just say, but, but so that people uh, know uh, exactly who I'm speaking to, because this is a bit of a two-hander, this podcast, because you are uh, the leader in the oceans. You are the UN patron of the ocean. And you have swum in your speedos in every ocean of the world in an endurance capacity. And in Antarctica and Greenland, which I find scary beyond belief. And, um, and you're also a marine lawyer, and I don't know quite how you managed to fit all that stuff in, as well as having been uh, in the military. But I uh, just thought I ought to say who I'm speaking to as well. You're very, very kind, Charles. You know, this year is now the 35th anniversary of when I started swimming. And it's hard to imagine, but when I started swimming, the oceans were very, very different. We'll get on to this amazing book that you've just written, Rewilding the Seas and How to Save Our Oceans. But... My first question to you today is, why is rewilding the seas so important? The reason we need to rewild the sea, which is coming into focus now, is because it brings together the fight against climate change and um, makes it front and central of the way we need to manage the sea. Now, we need to stop uh, killing off endangered species. We need to manage our fish stocks properly. We need to protect nature for its own sake. But why do we need to do all these things? Because the sea is uh, the largest carbon sink on the planet. It can help us to uh, tackle climate change. And we need to change the way we manage the sea in order to do that. But it's something we can do. It, it's a hopeful story. It's the biggest solvable problem on the planet. So, so Charles, how long has this, has this book taken to write? Well, I think it, it's taken a couple of years. I, I've sort of written it during lockdown, but it, it's about the first 10 years of uh, our charity, the Blue Marine Foundation, and the challenges we were trying to react to that were going on in the sea that were uh, portrayed in the first book I wrote, which became a feature film called The End of the Line, that was about overfishing across the planet. I think it was one of the few books that had ever pulled all of that together and shown what impact that overfishing was having having upon the planet itself. That, that task uh, prompted some of my friends and producers in the film production team to say, well, maybe there isn't actually a charity laser focused at these problems and why don't we set one up so we did but it was all in the context of of the subjects of, the, of that film which was you know the poster child for which was the bluefin tuna which at that, that time was going down and, and now 
very hearteningly is coming up. Now, now your latest book, Charles, is called Rewilding the Seas, uh, How to Save Our Ocean. Uh, there's a lot of talk about rewilding these days. Uh, is there a difference between rewilding the, the land and rewilding seas? You know, we hear all about rewilding Scotland and places like that. But is there a difference between land and sea and, you know, on this topic? Well, this was one of the things that prompted me to write the book. And we saw all this uh, talk about rewilding on land and introduction of beavers and uh, bison and uh, animals that had become extinct. And, and I thought, well, actually, that's very similar to what we have been trying to do in marine conservation for a long time. And uh, goes back to one of our great heroes, uh, what Bill Ballantyne, the New Zealander, was, was said about uh, how you should rewild the sea. He, he didn't agree with the then or indeed current nature conservation people and their philosophy of, of protecting sites and uh, features. He said, you, you put a piece of rope around any area of the sea and it'll become special. Uh, it'll become more special than the sea around it because you won't be doing anything to it and nature will do whatever it likes. And he showed that in uh, Goat Island Marine Reserve, which I think started in 1975. And it's it remains a great example to the world. And, and Charles, how much of the sea is actually wild still? Well, I, I looked into that. It's a good question. Um, and and the, the only science I can find on it is in itself... Uh, a raising of more questions than answers. It, it says it's 13%. <laughs> it's a very strangely exact figure. But some scientists did uh, a big study of where wilderness was. But the, the response to that study was uh, quite interesting. A lot of other scientists said, well, hey, the bit you found that you say is wilderness, for example, in the Chagos archipelago in the middle of the Indian Ocean, um, isn't actually wilderness. It's recovered wilderness. It's restored wilderness. Na nature has restored it, but it was exploited quite hard or, or it was exploited anyway by a human before. So it isn't pristine. It's become pristine. And that really set me off on this one because rewilding is about allowing the pristine to come back Pristine is a dynamic concept, not a historical one. And I found that concept mind-blowing and wonderfully hopeful. This is a hopeful book. Are there any areas around the waters around the United Kingdom which are pristine, Charles, or not at all? I somewhat doubt it. But, you know, I think that maybe, you know, buried in a Scottish sea lock, there are some lovely places that haven't been trawled or that have been caught by being made into marine protected areas before they were trashed. But there aren't many. Um, but we're about to have some. You know, we're about to recreate the pristine, I hope, as a result of some of the things that the British government, uh, with a lot of prodding from us, have been doing, for example, uh, by preventing trawling and dredging on the Dogger Bank, which is a big thing in the book. I mean, if you prevent trawling and dredging on a you know, 12,000 square kilometers of, of uh, continental shelf, then something is going to come back. Whether it's the big animals, the sturgeon, 
and the flapper skate. We used to call them common skate, but they're apparently two species. But they used to be sturgeon, the size of, you know, dolphins or whales um, that were swimming around on the dog or back. Whether there's big creatures like on, on land, the, the, the reintroductions uh, on land have had to be done because they become extinct. In the sea, it's more dynamic. Maybe there are one or two around. Maybe they'll breed there. Who knows? But I find the whole concept wonderfully exciting. The, the Dogger Bank really has legendary status, but, but you know, tell us, our listeners, you know, sort of where it is and you know, how, how deep the water is there uh, in the Dogger Bank. Well, the astonishing thing about the Dogger Bank is it used to be the land bridge to Europe from the island, you know, Great Britain. Um, and and it, it's not very far down. I think it's about 60 metres down, 20 to 60 metres down. So it's really shallow, which is partly why it's so rich. It used to be, as, as every, every child used to know, that the, the Dogger Bank was where the fish were. Well, now we haven't got very many fish in the North Sea, um, or at least we have exploited the commercial species to an extraordinary extent. Uh, the protection of the Dogger Bank raises huge hope that we might be able to reset. We have a reset of the whole ecosystem. Yes, I mean, and that's interesting because in the book you say that there are tendrils of hope out there. What are they, uh, Charles? Well, at the beginning of the decade that I start writing about, I think it was said that under 1% of the world's oceans was properly protected, fully protected. And uh, it, whatever you call protection, the established uh, wisdom now is that it's about 7.6% by the beginning of the 2020s. It, it may be creeping up a bit, but, you know, 7.6% isn't very much, but it's a heck of a lot more than under one. And now there is another model. Now there's another model. There's a counter model to, you know, mine it out and move on, which is what we've had since the beginning of history. We've got this other model and it's, it's growing all the time. Charles, talk to me a little bit about restoration. Are there places which are so badly altered that reintroductions are needed? And do they work? Again, this is a thing which gave us enormous hope. I mean, my colleagues uh, have done this and I've just written about it, but the return of the native, the native oyster in uh, the Solent. I remember coming and visiting that. That was amazing. I think you've been there and I yeah. think you saw why it was so amazing. We, we put these oysters in cages initially just to see what would happen in the uh, in marinas so that the predators couldn't get at them and they stayed in cleanish water. And we found that hundreds of other species used to turn up because they like being with oysters. It's a mystery as to why, but it is a known thing. 466 other species are associated with the European native oyster. And so if you put the oyster back, as we're attempting to do in Langston Harbour and in other bits of the Solent, you get not just one species, as people uh, who didn't know much about it were criticizing us for doing. You, you are putting back an ecosystem that wasn't there before um, uh, or wasn't there uh, because you've been fished out. And, and the oyster story is, I discovered, another overfishing story. It just, the oyster got fished out because it was sedentary, it's static. It got fished out 
hundreds of years before you know mobile fish <laughs> got fished out it's a, it's an overfishing story and boy did we hammer it and it, how do you put it back i don't know but we're, we're beginning we're beginning it's, it's new new beginnings and it's very exciting and bluefin tuna are another example aren't they charles i mean i i, I see some beautiful pictures of bluefin tuna coming back to the waters around cornwall where i grew up as a young boy what's caused that the fishing nations don't like to admit it, but what has caused that may be partly climatic, but the overwhelming reason is that we stopped overfishing the bluefin tuna in 2010 as a result partly of a campaign that was on the back of our, my previous book and film, The End of the Lion. It became a public knowledge that we had been doing a disgraceful thing to this beautiful, huge and very tasty fish that we were fishing it to a commercial extinction. And to everyone's amazement, we actually managed to persuade not only the European Union, which took a lot of doing, but Japan, that the, the, the sensible and the economically sensible, as well as ecologically sensible thing to do, was to slash the fishing season for bluefin tuna by three quarters. And suddenly, the, the, the tuna is an amazingly fecund creature and suddenly because the juveniles were surviving to become mature the juveniles were going to the atlantic they were coming back as huge spawning uh, uh giants that it is because we did the right thing and we're not doing the right thing by many species other than the bluefin tuna i mean two-thirds of the catches allowed in uh UK and EU waters are above scientific advice. But hey, we got it right for the bluefin tuna. It shows what we could do. This is economically, ecologically better. And it rewilds the sea. It's an amazing thing that had uh, was described to me by the first scientist who, who went to see the bluefin tuna off uh, Harrison Lewis, between Harrison Lewis and St Kilda, way out in the Atlantic, where it had not been seen for decades, was the interaction between the bluefin pushing up the bait balls of fish, the, the petrels and skewers diving into the, into the bait balls, and the fins of the bluefin cutting through as they ate the fish. It was just wonderful. Charles, you've also had some success in, in Lion Bay, or some success. A lot of success. T tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, I, I don't think it was our success. We've just documented it right. uh, along with Plymouth University. The, the great success in Lime Bay was achieved by fishermen and conservationists working together, inshore fishermen, to stop destructive techniques, which were destroying the reefs, uh, which have all sorts of uh, lovely corals and sea fans. They are called England's coral garden. And uh, the, the inshore fishermen knew that the offshore uh, scallop dredges and, and, and trawlers were actually turning these reefs into rubble and obviously destroying their value as, as habitat for um, uh, uh, finfish and, and shellfish. And, and they got... Uh, they, the minister, they persuaded the minister that the nature conservation value of what was in Lime Bay was so great that there should be no trawling and dredging, which was a huge precedent for English waters. And the result is extraordinary because four times the commercially 
uh, valuable fish, four times the number of actual species have come back since then. How long has that taken, Charles? Well, I think it started to happen in about five years, but it's to be really uh, banging with life, it's taken about a decade. Plymouth have just catalogued the first 12 years, and it is astonishing. It proves that what is good for the ecology is actually good for the economy, because it, there are more fish. There are more fish for fishermen to catch. You only just have to change the technique by which you're fishing them. And, and you need to change the amount that you're allowed to catch. You need to manage the fishery. And uh, there have been hiccups, but by and large, Lime Bay remains an example to the world. Charles, what do you see as the challenges for the future? Well, I think it's quantifying the good the sea can do for us if we treat it right, mm. because it's doing it already. But we have ignored its capacity to help us help ourselves. And we need to quantify that and encourage it. And for that, we actually need all these silos of government, the fisheries managers who aren't really doing it very well, and the uh, the people who are allowed trawling and dredging, um, uh, dredging for aggregates and so on, to think, again, review their environmental impact. That's what we need to do. And then we need to create great reserves that protect these, these, these resources of carbon, these, these uh, aggregators of carbon. And we're not doing that either. So we maybe need financial mechanisms to do that. But it, it, it's a huge agenda and we need to do it very quickly if we're going to help save the uh, the climate from from further uh, increase in temperature. Charles, it's been wonderful speaking to you this morning. Uh, to hear the passion and, and the excitement, this book is an amazing read. Lois, thank you so much. But I can't, I'm a journalist and I can't let you get away without saying what is motivating you this year? Where are you going this year? What are you up to? What are your priorities? So, so last year, Charles, I did this big swim in Greenland. Uh, across the face of the Aludasat glacier. And, and that glacier uh, was moving at a speed of 40 meters per day. I mean, it was just astonishing to see it. Just, I remember on one day, there was a mass carving and I literally saw thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs pouring out to sea. But you know, swimming in amongst icebergs is, is especially tough. I then went to Glasgow with the message that we need to, you know, we, we, we need to move much quicker than we're moving right now. The speed of the, the change which I'm seeing in the Arctic and the Antarctic is, 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 is terrifying. Um, the next climate summit is in Sharm el-Sheikh, and uh, that's home to some of the most incredible coral reefs in the world. I sort of see ice and coral as the two uh, ground zeros of the climate mm. crisis. You can see the change so quickly with ice you see sea ice melting you see glaciers retreating with coral you can see very very quickly when the water temperature has risen they get bleached and they die and, and so i want to to do some swimming in some warm waters now and uh, talk about coral the science is terrifying charles we've heated the planet by about 1.1 degrees uh, centigrade at 1.5 degrees, the scientists tell us that we will lose 70% of the world's coral. And at 2 degrees, we lose 
And for me, that's unthinkable. So it's terrifying, I'll, isn't it? So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll be focusing my attention uh, this year on coral reefs, going to Sharm El Sheikh and urging world leaders, come and have a look at this coral. These are the nurseries of the oceans. And unless we get a grip on this climate crisis, we risk losing all of this. Well, give them a copy of my book because there are some solutions out there and and let's try and get them to implement them. And then one final question, uh, Charles. I mean, some of this content um, has been a little gloomy, but you're a hopeful person. That comes through very strongly in the book. You know, why is it that you've got this hope? I do have hope because if we could just do the things that I have added up in this book as being good actions and they've been tremendously successful and they are quite wonderful to watch and and write about as well um you know if we could just do the right thing uh, uh more um we would uh, have an astonishingly different future the future could be wildly different as i've called my last chapter I and mean, i just my eyes have been open to how much we could we could do if we just got it right. I mean, we we don't buy, um, you know, 40-year-old, 50-year-old Soviet-era cars because we know they're unsafe, they don't work, they conk out. Well, there are a number of Soviet-era cars in the management systems of the, of the oceans, both in fisheries management and in marine uh, protected areas. There are stuff, the stuff out there that doesn't work, we know damn well doesn't work. Why are we still doing it? Why are we overfishing all these species in UK waters when we know that if we didn't, we'd get more back? I mean, it's just bonkers what we're doing. Let's, you know, let's do the best practice. If we do the best practice, and I have shown how it can be done, then the sea is going to be a healthier place and we will all benefit. Charles, it's been wonderful speaking to you. We're out of time. I pray that policymakers pick up this book and implement your advice. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you, Lewis. The Blue Marine Foundation podcast. For more episodes and further insights, go to bluemarinefoundation.com.